This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Joseph No, plays the character of Chum in Cambodian Rock Band by Lauren Yee, which is playing at Berkeley Rep through April 2nd. Joseph No is an actor, he's a musician. Joseph No has also been in several other plays that have hit the Bay Area, though he wasn't in the past here, and that's King of the Yees and Viet Gong. Joseph No, before we get into the character of Chum, I want to go back and talk about the origins of Cambodian rock band, which deals with the killing fields and the aftermath of the killing fields. You came into it at the very beginning at the ground floor in Berkeley. How did you come to get involved in Cambodian rock band? Before Berkeley Rep, I had worked with Lauren Yee on several of her plays. I was in grad school up in University of Washington when I first met her. And she had brought along this play called King of the Yees. And I had helped develop some of the characters for that show. And then went on to do part of the premiere. Uh, it was sort of like this three-parter premiere. I was part of the Seattle cast of that show. Short version of it is that she was working with me. She liked my work. And one day she decided to bring this play that she had been thinking about, this Cambodian play about music, to Seattle to sort of test it out. And so she brought it around, brought me into the room, asked if I if she could have me as one of the actors. And while we were working on the play, I essentially just mentioned to her, like, you know, it's amazing that you're working on this Cambodian story. My parents are actually survivors of the Khmer Rouge. And she had not known that prior to that moment. She thought I was just like a Chinese American. And, you know, I may look a little more on that end. So uh, she, she might have assumed that. But yeah, I told her about my Cambodian heritage and background. And we got to talking over uh, a lunch and several hours later and several so stories later, she started getting all these ideas. And so she started incorporating my family history and stories into this work. And then through that combination, uh, and through the workshops at the ground floor, et cetera, we just never stopped working on it. And that character just became my character. When you say you never stopped working in, on it, what is the process like working as an actor with a playwright at the very, very beginning when she's forming the play? Can you kind of give an example of the interplay you had? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are certain cadences that get developed between the actor and the playwright. As she's sort of developing the character, there are sort of Laurenisms, like Lauren Yee, the way she speaks and the way she writes, that are innate to the character. But being the person who gets to read the character and the development process, she starts to pick up on those, those sort of idiosyncrasies as well. And so that sort of gets built into the character as well which is a wonderful thing because it sort of gives you a tie into that person forever. Like that character is always going to be or always going to sound a little bit like the actor who first developed it. Well, when you're talking about an idiosyncrasy that you have, that the character have, what's an example of that? Within the story itself, there are pieces from my family history, A, that have been built into the character of Chum, but there are also line breaks and the way I speak in some ways 
that have been built into the character of Chum that are, I would say, like, not exactly on the page if you were to look at it as an outsider. If you were just another actor reading it, you know, there might be a line that says, like, oh, he's really lucky to be here. Whereas I would read it if I was in the character of Chum, I would be like, oh, he'd re- he's really lucky to be here. Which is odd, but that is the way like that dialectical work would work out for my character. And so I've built that into my performance, but some other actor may not actually pick up on that. That particular way you pronounce, are you getting that then from, say, your parents' accent? Yeah, I developed the accent from my parents, my uncles, and, and family members, older family generational members. Is that different from, say, working on an accent for, say, Viet Gone? I think so. It'd be easy to just say, like, oh, it's all Southeastern Asian, but the Khmer accent is slightly different. There are, there are you know, letters that you can, can pronounce and can't pronounce <laughs> in our, our separate languages, and I think people tend to mistake the two. It's close, but it's not the same. So how do you do the research for something that's close and not the same and make sure that it's separate from what you're more used to? Ah, I had to actually do the charts for myself when I was developing the character. So even though I'm close to it and I can approximate my parents' dialect, right? I can go out there and just do a a caricature of my parents. I try never to do that. So I actually took down the charts and sort of formed essentially like the target language, the target accent that I was going for and putting down like, for example, like, oh, instead of a TH sound, it'd be closer to a D sound. Instead of this B sound, it's sort of this in between a B and a P. Um, And then I would say like certain Khmer words would accent certain parts of the syllable or certain syllables. And so I made sure to mark those through my script and that's how I built the, the original sound. And when you talk about charts, what exactly are you talking about? Charts, uh, essentially just sound charts. So usually when they do like dialect work, they'll, they'll say like, oh, the target language uses, uh, let's say like a D sound instead of a TH sound. So instead of a character saying the, they would say the. Yeah, so we would build that in. Although Kamai actually does have a, a soft TH sound, so... That's not a great example. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about the difference between when you're playing Chum as an older man speaking English versus Chum as a Cambodian speaking Khmer? Luckily, I, I would say that like as older Chum, I don't ever have to do it unless I'm singing, which I think the natural resonance of my singing voice, whether I'm old Chum or young Chum, is the same in the singing. Right. So there are uh, not challenges, it just exists that way. But as younger Chum, I do do things with my voice, whether it's singing or not, that is sort of, I I work towards the reflective, I, I, I build a voice that is younger, stronger voice of older Chum. Like as an actor, I think about it as how do I get to the voice at the end of the play or at the beginning of the play? actually. Yeah. When you were working with Lauren, was was Dengue Fever, the songs from Dengue Fever, was that part of the original process when you first worked with Lauren Yi? Yeah, actually, if you've t- had conversations with Lauren, she'll tell you that 
it was one of the inciting incidents was that she had gone to see Dengue Fever and had heard this music and was just like, I need to write a play about this. She wasn't sure exactly how it was going to like fold into the equation. So she had started using the originally when we were first developing the play, only Dengue Fever songs. And then uh, eventually was like, oh yeah, I should fold in these um, classic songs as well. So actually we started with Dengue. And they actually at Berkeley uh, at the ground floor, a scene in Williams of Dengue Fever came in to teach us how to play us their songs essentially. What was your background in guitar playing prior to working on this show? I was a guitar player, but mostly a hobbyist, like most people are. I've been playing since I was about 14, but not to any professional level, I would say. This show has made me a much better guitarist than I've ever imagined I could be. Yeah, it, it definitely was a challenge to get it started. But as we developed the play in workshops, the more members of Dengue Fever actually started to show up. So Zach Holtzman, who was the guitarist for Dengue Fever, came to the other development workshops in uh, at South Coast Rep and actually taught me how to play his parts of the guitar. And we had to like create all the um, the tablature for it and all the music sheets for it too. How is it listening to yourself now and how you play? That must be a very weird feeling, particularly since you were an amateur. Yeah, I definitely play a lot better than I did during those workshops. When we first walked into those workshops, I felt very overwhelmed. And this is coming, you know, to play with this, you know, guitarist, Zach Holtzman, who's a genius at guitar. And uh, he literally sat down with me when he was trying to teach me. And he would t play these licks that were, were just like the speed of light. And he'd be like, hey, so play that. And I was like, I don't even know where to start. And he actually was like, even if I wanted to teach you, I have to tell myself to slow down because I've forgotten how to play it in a slow fashion. <laughs> so, so we had to like tell him to slow down and like literally write down every note he was playing. And then I had to learn from that and then catch up to speed. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a friend of mine who has been playing uh, gypsy jazz back in New York, having to slow down so that he could play fast later on. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Joe, no. In terms of working with the other musicians, the actor who plays Neri, the daughter, she's new to Berkeley Rep, right? Yes, she is. Yeah. The others you played with from the beginning? Yeah. So the two of us, the two that have stuck around the longest, the three of us that we, so we joking call ourselves the OGs, are Abraham Kim, the drummer and uh, Jane Louie, who is the uh, keyboardist. And uh, yeah, we've worked uh, since the beginning of this play, essentially. Once music was introduced, once Lauren had this bright idea that like, oh, maybe we could actually have live music, which was not always uh, the case. She decided, well, we need to find some ringers. And boy, did she find them. <laughs> because Abraham Kim had been like this Los Angeles-based Asian-American drummer who has been around in circles for years just playing rock music. And Jane Louie had an incredible, you know, career already as a, a keyboardist and singer-songwriter. Oh, there's our bass player too, Moses, who's played by Moses Villarama. And he also played the character Lang. He started working with us for most of the tour now or most of the productions now. So 
Uh, he came in after South Coast Rep at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He came in for the Signature Theater in New York then? As well, yeah. So he's been with us pretty much also since the beginning. He only missed the first uh, the first production of it. When you're playing together on stage at Berkeley Rep, having played together so long, does it kind of feel like you're a real band at that point? Must. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, we really are a band. The challenge for us sometimes is that we want to play the way a band plays, which is like looking at each other and, you know, like having good eye contact and just playing in a circle, playing in a room together. But the challenge of that being in a play is that we do have to give some of that to the audience or they're going to be pretty upset that they don't see any of our faces. Yeah, there are moments that we will often catch ourselves where we're always checking in with each other, trying to hold that line, trying to hold our rhythm together, just trying to find that magic pocket that, you know, every musician is looking for. So it is really a search for actually being a solid band. And I think that is one of the challenges, the major challenge of the show that has been a, even a casting issue throughout its years in production is are you a good actor? And also, are you a good musician? Because both have to be there to make this show possible. Joe No, let's talk about your background and the background of the play, which is really where the play moves. When did your parents come over from Cambodia? My parents came over in 1981. So that was how long after the conflict, the genocide, whatever you want to call it, the Khmer Rouge in power was 75 to 79. So my parents are survivors of that. They were born and raised in a city called Batambang, uh, which is referred to in the play as well. Um, and they were forced to work in labor camps, like many of you know Cambodia's citizens at the time. Went through the life of being a refugee in refugee camps in Indonesia and Singapore. Crossed the Thai border uh, several times and finally made it to United States in 1981 after actually having a child too. My oldest brother uh, was born in 81 and they came in like, like November ish uh, of that year. What had they been doing prior to the Khmer Rouge? They were kids actually. My parents were in their teens when the Khmer Rouge happened. So just like having a teenage life, I suppose, whatever you want to call it, going to high school in the countryside of Batambang. Yeah, living their best lives. Did you use any of that material in the flashback to what life was like in Phnom Penh prior to the Khmer Rouge? Yeah, actually, there are a couple of insights into the play that uh, I don't know if we've snuck in. They're part of a lot of people's stories, but we cemented. So one of the stories I had talked about was to Lauren was even in the development of the play throughout the play, not just in the 70s part of it, but Chu mentions that he um, had to cross the Thai border a couple of times. They sent, you know, they sent him back. And that is part of my parents' story. They traveled down this place called Ghost Mountain, which was just littered with landmines that the Thai sent them over in order to essentially just have them die, which was just this awful atrocity. And then Lauren thought it'd be fun to create this thing, this live band karaoke scene, which also made it into the play as well, which is what my great uncle was part of. He was actually part of this live band karaoke scene that existed in like Phnom Penh and Batambang. There are little insights that I borrowed from my parents about like 
what it was like to be a kid in that time and how impactful it was. While in the play, it's sort of urgent and and um, immediate. I, I think that's just part of like how plays work. Like the action always sort of is happening now as opposed to happening later or before. There's this moment in the play in which the characters all say, oh, you know, the airport is closed and the Khmer Rouge is coming. That was really impactful to my mom when she first saw it. It triggered something. It triggered a response that was maybe a little PTSD response in which she was like, I remember that day. I remember when the airport closed and I remember how terrifying it was. And I remember all I could think about was we're, we're in for another three or four years of forced labor. And so like keeping that in mind, that was how I sort of navigated my own character's fears in that scene in 1975. It sounds like you also kind of navigated her PTSD as well, particularly in the opening scenes. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, listening to the stories of survivors, listening to my parents growing up, allows me insight into this play. And it's difficult for me. I think early on when I was working on the play, it was actually quite difficult for me. I've only now, I would say, within the last two runs of this show, after having given it a break, we had to take a break, of course, because of the pandemic. It gave me the opportunity to sort of sit with the play, sit with how I've been living with it myself, because it actually triggered quite a bit of, yeah, I guess with intergenerational trauma for myself as an actor working on my parents' story. Early on when we were working on it, there were moments I would catch myself because I played this character who is essentially like my dad. And the way I would speak, of course, like I said earlier, was like this dialectical work that I found through my father. And I would catch myself on stage and be like, wow, did that come out of my mouth right now? Like, I just heard my father in the room and it was scary in a way, like to hear him say certain things. So yeah, it would trigger these responses that that was probably not the best thing when you're trying to like recreate a performance every night without having to dig into this, you know, the darkest parts of your heart to, you know, perform, which is just therapy on stage, which, you know, I'm I am definitely not interested in. Nor, nor should the audience be either. Did you go back to Cambodia at some point uh, during the creation of the play? I did, yes. Uh, in, 20, in 2018, at the end of 2018, I went back. So after our first production of the play, I thought it was sort of my due diligence to go visit Cambodia. And not just because I, you know, uh, just because of the play, but I wanted to go back as well. I wanted to go see my family's family that's left there and visit my parents' hometown. And uh, there's this part in the play as well uh, where we go to a fish spa, and so, which is where the fish, like these little fish nibble on your dead skin on your feet. Right. And I was like, you know, I need to go experience this. So I actually did go to do that as well. I went to Siem Reap. Uh, I saw Angkor Wat and all the temples there. I went to my parents' hometown, Batambang, and saw how they grew up. And then I visited uh, Phnom Penh. I visited uh, the Killing Fields Memorial. I also went to S21 as well and saw the survivors that are are referred to in the play too, Bu Ming and Van Nat, who actually are at the memorial essentially every day selling their books. Doik is a real character? 
He is a real person, yes. And he is kind of the villain of the piece. When did the idea of making him also almost like the cabaret MC, when did that element come into the into play? I think Lauren had toyed with the idea that it was a bigger person, that it might have been like Pol Pot himself or brother number two, three, four, whatever it was, somewhere higher up in the chain. But um, because of the, she had been reading up on the trials of Doik, which were happening when she started, you know, working on the play or it had piqued her interest. She was like, you know what? This person is so compelling after watching his interviews because the way he conducts, if you watch these old interviews, is he literally is just like a showman in some ways. He was the first person to sort of invite cameras in. Like he was like, I have nothing to hide. I was just following orders, you know, um, and because he was like a math teacher and because he was just so intelligent and eloquent, you could see him in that role. And Lauren Yee was, I think, just captivated by that presence and was like, you know what? What if I just took that one step further and, and put this character in a spot where he really believes that he can find redemption in, you know, navigating this story and being like, I'm the star of this play. I'm, I'm the, you know, uh, yeah, this is my story and this is my show. So yeah, she just took it one step further to just give him that platform. But we, of course, if you come see the play, you'll see that that's not, that's not all the play is. As somebody of Cambodian heritage, when you look back on this and try to make sense of it, and this is separate from your work as an actor, what goes through your mind about that era? Can you even grasp it? You know, I think for any Cambodian American, a Cambodian who had to survive that, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know if I can grasp it. I don't know if it's a, it's an answerable question, only for the fact that when we look at that time and that history, the history of conflict in Cambodia seemed to arise out of nowhere. And it also was Cambodians killing Cambodians, which is one of the most like sort of heartbreaking things. And in, in this like search for identity, even as a Cambodian American to be like defined by that is such a difficult question because it, it, it does trigger this little bit of trauma to say like, do you want to define as the, as a people who killed themselves. And, and that is just, I don't know, there's a pain that exists in there. And do you want to claim that national heritage even because are you part of claiming the, the perpetrators or are you claiming the victims? I guess you have to claim both in some ways. When I was there in 2016, first of all, you know, everybody was young. You know, everybody was post-Khmer Rouge, it seemed. And it almost seemed as if when I talked to people about it, they would say matter-of-factly that X number of relatives were killed, things like that. But it almost felt like they treated it as this ancient, weird gap in history that they couldn't quite get their hands around it. And the best thing to do was kind of pretend it wasn't there, if that makes sense. I think that makes absolute sense. And I think you had a great beat on that to say it like that. Um, a lot of older generations, it feels like they, they want to just forget that it ever happened. In my personal history, I would say like my parents, like I said before, they were teens 
And so they, they were much more open about the stories of the killing fields than I think other parents that I, you know, the other kids' parents that I grew up with were only because I think, I think they were young enough that they accepted that that was part of life. Whereas I think if you were in your twenties, maybe thirties, and you were going through it, you already knew what life was. And then the change was so disruptive that having survived that, I think you just want to block out that part of that life. There is just a, a different contrast to it. Yeah, it definitely there's this part of this reconciliation that is hard to make happen because of how many people just want to forget this painful, awful part of that history. And and to, even today, even in Cambodia, you, definitely are the youth of Cambodia, they actually don't know a lot of the history because their parents won't talk about it. They literally just ignore it as if it never happened, uh, despite the fact that, you know, like I said before, S21, Tuasaleng uh, Prison, where Doik committed these atrocities, it's literally right in the middle, right in the heart of Phnom Penh. And Chung Ek, the Killing Fields Memorial, is probably like, what, five miles uh, south? It's really not that far. It's just a little car ride away. It's hard to understand like how both those things can exist at the same time. When I was in Siem Reap, I did make a pilgrimage up to the memorial. And it's curious, there was nobody there or nobody was really looking. I had to find a tuk-tuk driver who knew where it was. It's kind of almost amateurish to see the photos up there. It's like nobody wants to take the time and energy to devote to that memorial, whereas if you go to the National Museum in Siem Reap, there you see, you know, it's a gorgeous museum, and they put a lot of emphasis on Cambodian history. So even in that sense, you sort of feel it when you're there. Yeah, I would definitely say that's true. Yeah, there is this mentality, I think, of life having to just move on. And, you know, we talk about it in the play as well, that it's hard to accept only for the fact that, like, I would say as, uh, you know, someone of a child of survivors, I, I think I can say with a little bit clearer head that it's hard to move on if your neighbor is the person who committed a crime against you. And I think that's where the difficulty in the reconciliation exists, that even today, you know, like Hun Sen was a former police captain or whatever for police chief in the Khmer Rouge and he is the prime minister of Cambodia and so like yeah these these hard truths that you have to accept that people have to go on living and so it will never be as tidy as we wish it could be and I think yeah it causes a lot of people to just want to forget. Uh, One final question on that and then I would like to ask you a little about your career. I have been friends with several children of Holocaust survivors do you see some kind of some kind of connection to the children of Holocaust survivors as a child of the Killing Field survivors? I do actually through the performances. Uh, when we, whenever we had talkbacks or if I've hung around after the show to say hi to people, I've gotten a lot of people who are Holocaust survivors or children of who have said like this play 
it exemplifies exactly what you know we went through as well like and so i think there is just this heart connection between the two genocides it's heartbreaking that 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 is the history that is shared but yeah there is definitely a deep empathy and sympathy in there that exists joe no let's talk a little about your career um you were born in monterey park california and grew up there parents, I guess, who originally didn't even speak English. What brought you to the stage? <laughs> that's, a, that's a foggy question, to be honest. A, a lot of things. I didn't really come from a, like an artistic background family. I think there was a lot of art in my family, like my father. He, he's, uh, um, he used to do calligraphy, and both my parents were like singers, and they enjoyed music and stuff. But like, the stage itself was never an, a thing that I had ever thought about until I went to high school. And um, when I was in high school, I remember just like being able to imitate people really well. And I was able to like imitate voices and do all sorts of gags and bits, you know, just be a, a clown in drama class, but not in any other classes. I wasn't really a class clown, nor did I actually even seek attention. But when it was given to me, I think, in drama class, I was like, well, if it's, I'm going to be on stage and I'm stuck up here, I'm going to do something with that time, I guess. And just through that and through the encouragement of like teachers, yeah, I built something for myself that I, I was, I guess, even surprised that I knew I had in me. And years later, I look back at it now and I think to myself, if no one had told me that I was good, I don't know if I would have continued to do it. But I somehow entertained people and I was like, oh, I guess I must be pretty good at this. Maybe I'll just keep going because I don't think anybody else told me that I was good at anything else. What was your first professional production that you worked in? Uh, my first professional production was this uh, children's theater production at Main Street Theater Company in Rancho Cucamonga. I did this children's show, uh, Miss Nelson is Missing where I played uh, this kid who, I don't know if he was delusional. His name was Elvis, and I guess he was supposed to be a, a child version of Elvis. <laughs> As an Asian actor, uh, I guess limitations have been coming off little by little, allowing more Asians to play you know, more roles. How limiting was that when you first began auditioning? I think I can even go back to the days like early on for myself when I was young and starting to be an actor after undergraduate. It, it's sort of a, a shocking um, revelation, which at the time, I mean, things have changed quite a bit, but it was shocking uh, when I came out of undergraduate because I, I had gone to school at Cal Poly Pomona, which was more of a technical school, but they gave me a lot of opportunities to be on stage because the, the, the department in, in theater was such a mixed race, mixed, you know, everybody was there. We were very well represented. Yeah, I got the chance to be on stage and play all sorts of characters, Shakespearean. Otherwise, you know, there was sort of no limitations to to what I could be on stage, unless there were specific directors who were sort of, you know, like, I want to cast this type of person. Yeah, I got the chance to do that. But once I stepped out of the classroom and into the world, even at that time, like the mid-2000s, Casting calls and breakdowns still were very specific to say, like, 
this is a white role, like, and very rarely was there ever, this was an Asian role, or this is a role that it doesn't matter what the race is. So it was actually specifically against us still at that time. So I do remember all those days. And it was really disheartening to go to sort of like, whatever you want to call it, Hollywood or LA or theater at the time, even, and find work. And so I actually had to find my way into the circles of Asian American actors and Asian American companies or Asian American plays to sort of just like be able to get some experience at all. And even that was difficult. And the other sort of safe haven that even despite like how it looks uh, or the way that people I I think think it looks, Shakespeare was always one of those ones that they, uh, a lot of directors were like, Oh, it doesn't matter. Like we'll cast you in this role or cast you in that. And so like I found sort of a safe haven in Shakespeare as well early on until, yeah. And then I made my way eventually going to grad school in University of Washington, where I think the times had changed quite significantly. How tight is the Asian American acting community among yourselves? I think it is pretty tight. Even if you don't know everybody, you know somebody who knows someone else. That's for sure. And I think the best part of the like the Asian American actor community is that uh, we come out for each other. Like we actually come out to each other's performances as much as we can. Like if we know that there is an Asian play in the area, like Cambodian Rock Band is here at Berkeley, and um, we know I know that I've seen already most of the cast of uh, Poor Yellow Rednecks, which is over at ACT, uh, come out to see our show already. Yeah, and we're aiming to go to see their show probably at the end of the month as well. So it's sort of just like this unspoken bond, I think, or maybe it's spoken quite loudly, <laughs> that we need to support each other. And so we do. It's quite a, yeah, a loving place and a good place to be, especially in the, I would say, more specifically in the theater community, because it is quite still a specialized field, whereas in film and television, I think that still is its sort of its own bubble of Asian American actors. The Asian American theater actors are still sort of like this, this wily bunch that is out to support each other forever. <laughs> How did you get involved with HBO, with the HBO show Crashing? I just did an audition for it. At the time, my agent was like, hey, you'd be good for this. I had gone on audition for this piece. Like they were looking for like this couple, Asian American couple or people of color couple to be on that show crashing. I auditioned with this young lady named Maggie and we uh, were supposed to be doing this scene in which we were telling our, you know, our parents like, or my parents that we were going to have a baby and um, so, yeah, I auditioned with that and I did not get that role, but I got a different role. I actually was part of like this audience participation thing uh, that, that was a character that I ended up playing. And I think the reason I got that role was because I improvised in the audition tape for that couple. Uh, I try to like flip the scene on its head and the, the way that I did it literally made the, the casting director laugh behind the camera. And so I think she sent it in to, uh, you know, the casting directing, you know, casting department, and they just picked me anyway. And they were like, we don't want you for that, uh, that couple part, but we want you for this other thing. So yeah, I ended up on that show because of that little moment. 
Well, now you've been doing Cambodian rock band for the past seven years, minus two. Yep, minus two. <laughs> for the pandemic. What do you have coming up? It's just going to be Cambodian rock band for quite a while. I've done some voice things that have appeared. I'm in this reading uh, of a, a LA Theater Works piece that, you know, those one of those um, those audio dramas uh, that appears. So I was in one of those, What You Are Now, which is now available as well. Pretty much we're just on this national rock and roll tour <laughs> right now. So yeah, we're at Berkeley Rep until April. And then we take a couple months off, but then we jump over to D.C. Uh, in July and then Seattle right after that, all the way up until November. And then we finally, I finally head home to LA to do a Cambodia rock band in LA eventually as well. Is there a, a recording of the songs? There is, yeah. So we did do a, an album of the New York cast at Signature Theater. So there is, yeah, a collection of that. Although there's one song that does not exist and there are reasons for it. <laughs> which you have to hear live because it is the song that we're not allowed to record, which is Bob Dylan's Times They Are Changing. You're a writer. Does that mean you're a playwright? I wouldn't say I'm a playwright per se, but yes, I've written for myself in past when I've not devoted all my time to Cambodian rock band. I used to do a lot of solo performance work. So I had written like a play about this language that I speak called Did You, which is like, uh, a Chinese language that is diasporic, like it floats through Cambodia and like Thailand and Vietnam. So, so mostly Southeast Asian Chinese language, as opposed to like actually being spoken in China, which it actually is kind of dying in China. But yeah, I've written a plays about that. I've written plays essentially for my own performance that, that would just be a one person show. Your website, Jono, says you won an Obie? Yes, I did for a Cambodian rock band. Obi is actually very interesting. It's quite an honor to actually win an Obi. It's we all, like people have described it as essentially an off-Broadway Tony because it's given by the same people, the American Theater Wing. The Obi, unlike the Tony Awards or like other awards, isn't chosen through a, it's not like a nomination process the way we think of other award shows or awards where they're like five people up for this role and then the winner is this person. The OB is actually given by this group of nomination process. They all get together, decide on this these people that they want to consider, then they talk it through and they decide to give it to you if they want to give it to you. So actually it's quite an honor uh, because they could decide to give no one the OB. How many people got the award for best actor that year? Just you then? I think actually it's only like four of us got an acting or a performance award that year. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well-deserved, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate it. And finally, getting back to Cambodian rock band, how familiar were you with Khmer Rock and with Dengue Fever going in? I was a little familiar with Dengue Fever going in. I had heard some of their music when I was a little bit younger. As opposed to Cambodian rock and roll, I had heard some of it growing up, but wasn't like fully immersed in it. What actually brought my deepest connection into the play is that I and my parents got to pick some of the songs of the play in some ways. 
while Lauren had decided on like she she wanted to put in I am 16 Chnam uh, on Pramoy um, which is like the sort of final song of the show that unites the you know the father and daughter it sort of cemented itself into the play because while it's one of the most popular songs of the time it is actually a song that came out essentially when my mom was growing up and it was one of her absolute favorite songs of all time and she like knew every single word to the song before you know having grown up in that time i remember when i started uh talking to her about the play and i was like hey mom do you remember or know this song she just like went wild she was like oh my god it's one of my favorites you have to have this in the show so it's sort of like a deep connection with her and then the other song that actually appears in the show that i got to actually pick which is the song called champa batambang which is the song that chum i get to sing at the top of act 2 and it was specifically chosen because lauren was very interested in putting a sinsisamut who is like the elvis beatles frank sinatra rolled into one of cambodia and she was like i have to have a song by him by him in the show so we had had some nominees for our candidates for what song it was and i had said you know it's a very special connection to me to sing this song chapa batambang because it is a song dedicated to my parents hometown which is uh, not ironically the hometown of sinsisamut as well so it was just the most appropriate song to put in the show and for you personally when you walk out of an evening aside from being exhausted what do you take away from it i think every time i do this piece even as i do it every night and i'm exhausted by it it is something that i do because i know i can give back this piece of history to audience members and to myself and to the community of cambodian americans and asian americans uh it's a piece that resonates so deeply with i think everyone to be honest uh because everybody understands family connection they everybody understands dark pieces of history in their own family and also in their country and yeah i think that's something that we can all come around you've been listening to an interview with Joe No who plays the character of Chum and won an obi for it in Cambodian rock band by Lauren Yee which is playing at Berkeley Rep through April 2nd for more information you go to berkeleyrep.org feedback on this and other radio walensky podcasts is appreciated you can write to bookwaves@hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website Until next time, I'm Richard Bolinski on the Area 941 Radio Bolinski podcast. <laughs>